Killer Derek Ernest Percy died in hospital early this morning, taking his grisly secrets to the grave. As 10 News revealed last week, he'd been riddled with cancer. Despite repeated efforts from police and a bedside coronial hearing, he revealed nothing about unsolved child murders. Emma O'Sullivan explains. Derek Percy's death is bittersweet for Gary Stilwell. The spectre of Derek Percy um, that's hung over this family for 45 years has now passed and we can sort of get some peace from that. Retired policeman Bernie Delaney put Percy behind bars for killing Yvonne Tui, the Victorian 12-year-old kidnapped from a beach in 1969. He fantasised about what he would do. He wrote about it. He wrote pages and pages fantasising about what he would do to small children. Shane Spiller was aged 11 and with Yvonne when she was taken. He defended himself, waving a tomahawk at Percy. But emotionally, he never recovered and went missing 10 years ago. He was caught red-handed in that uh, the little boy uh, Spiller uh, made good observations. He told the uniformed police who were quick to attend and quick to do what they should do. Mr Delaney also believes Percy murdered Sydney toddler Simon Brooke. Percy was also in Adelaide when the Beaumont children disappeared. We thought we had an opportunity towards the end. Unfortunately, that um, opportunity seems to have slipped past. The inquest into Linda Stilwell's disappearance will resume and hear from one last police witness. Gary is hopeful he and his six siblings will be able to gather in Melbourne when a finding is handed down. Hopefully Linda's legacy um, will be that um, my family is whole again. It will mark the end of a dark chapter in criminal history. However, as we've heard, Percy's death doesn't end the investigations. Emma O'Sullivan joins us live now. Emma, what's next for authorities involved with the Derek Percy case? Mel, it's expected efforts will now be made to contact Percy's relatives to see if they want to organise a funeral. And even though Percy is gone, some details remain closely guarded. For instance, today the Defence Force wouldn't confirm if Percy continued to receive a naval pension in prison, citing privacy reasons. Percy died as a suspect in several other unsolved cases from the 1960s, including the murder of 15-year-old friends Marianne Schmidt and Christine Sharrick at Wanda Beach. The Beaumont children, who seemed to disappear without a trace in 1966. The murder of six-year-old Alan Redston, abducted in Canberra. In 2005, a coroner recommended that Percy be charged over the brutal murder of Simon Brooke in Sydney. And, of course, Victorian police believe Percy was responsible for abducting Linda Stilwell when she became separated from her siblings in St Kilda back in 1968. Mel? Emma O'Sullivan reporting there. Welcome to this week's episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. Thank you for all your kind words and support that we've received in the last week when we took our impromptu break. My youngest daughter actually fractured her leg, so I spent all week running around after her and I just did not have time to finish an episode. Before we get into this week's episode, we're going to smash out a few more thank yous for our lovely Patreons. So a big thank you to Sharon. I'm sorry if I say this wrong, but I think it's Irene. Lisa, Tegan, Megan, Carissa, Roslyn, Maddie, Amy, Helena and Shez. 
Thanks so much for that, guys. And at this stage, we're getting really, really behind with our thank yous because you guys are amazing and you're joining up so quickly and there's so many of you and it's awesome. But yeah, I'm just struggling to keep on top of that. So we'll, we'll keep going with that in each episode. With that said, I'm going to pass you over to Bill so we can get started on this week's episode. Thanks, Harry. So this week we are discussing one of the cases that was a nail in the coffin of Australia's innocence. Yvonne Tui and Shane Spiller left home at approximately 10.30am on the morning of the 20th of July, 1969. Yvonne was 12 years old and lived an innocent and carefree lifestyle. While she was close to her parents, they were not overprotective. Her parents, Frances and Nancy, owned a boat hire business in Warneet, which is a small fishing town 54 kilometres southeast of Melbourne CVD in the city of Casey. Yvonne also had two older sisters. Denise was 14 and Maxine was 17 years old. The Tui kids were known to be both respectful and polite. The early 1960s was a different time for children in Australia and all over the world. Children spent all their free time outside, unsupervised by parents, and stranger danger had not yet been conceptualised. Somewhere in the mid to late 60s and onwards, fear began to permeate the innocence of Australia, in large part due to some of the crimes we will be discussing today. Reality hit that bad things can happen when children are left to their own devices. They can become targets for predators. Public safety announcements about stranger danger became more and more common and child predators became every parent's worst nightmare. Yvonne and Shane decided to go down to Ski Beach, which is just across the ocean from the top of Phillip Island and French Island. When Yvonne and Shane arrived at the beach, it was nearly deserted. The pair didn't take much notice of the Datsun station wagon parked overlooking the beach. While they were arguing over which way they wanted to go on the beach, a man came up from behind Yvonne and put his arm around her neck. He held a knife to her throat and began to threaten her and Shane. Shane had a tomahawk on him that he pulled out and held over his head, hoping to scare the man. The man said... Put that down or I'll hurt the girl. Shane noticed that the man's voice was high-pitched and soft. It quickly became obvious that the man wanted to capture both Yvonne and Shane as he snarled at Yvonne, tell your friend to get back here. Shane ran and the man chased him, dragging Yvonne with him for around 40 yards as she yelled, Shane, help. A couple walking on the beach heard a child screaming and calling for help. But after some time, the screams dulled and the couple dismissed them. Shane continued to run, looking for help. He saw a car coming and ran into the middle of the main road to try and stop it. The car contained the Payden family. Shane yelled in a panic. A man jumped out of his car and grabbed my friend Yvonne with a knife. He's taken her away. Another car stopped to offer the panicked boy some tea to help him calm down. The occupants of the cars took Shane down to the beach where the man had attacked Yvonne, but there was no sign of her. The Payton family drove Shane to Yvonne's family home to let them know what had happened. At 1.10pm, Yvonne's dad reported her abduction to the Cranbourne police. The message was loud and clear. A 12-year-old girl has been abducted at knife point in Warneet. Please attend. The Payton family 
who had stopped to assist Shane, realised that just before they came across him, they had passed the station wagon with a man sitting oddly high up in his car, like he was sitting on something. They reported this to the police in their statement. Roadblocks were immediately put up around Warneet in an attempt to block people from getting in and out of the small town. Shane was devastated and traumatised by the situation, and it was clear that he was shattered as the police interviewed him. He remembered that the man had gotten out of the light-coloured Datsun station wagon with a Navy sticker on the back. A police officer, Constable Malcolm Grant, was dispatched to search for a vehicle matching this description. After the story hit the news, a family who was in the area realised that they may have seen something suspicious. The family were in Devon Meadows looking for a spot to picnic at approximately 2.45pm. They saw a light-coloured car sticking out of the bushes in a deserted field and heard two distinct voices. They thought it might be a couple looking for privacy and left the area, but after seeing the news of a missing girl, they decided to report the incident to police. Because Shane Spiller reported seeing a Navy sticker on the back of the car, the logical place to search for it was the closest naval base, Cerberus. Cerberus is a naval training establishment on the Mornington Peninsula. Constable Malcolm Grant arrived and began searching the car park for a vehicle similar to the description given by Shane Spiller. He quickly came across what he was looking for, a Datsun station wagon with a Navy sticker on the back. The car looked like it had been recently washed and had a mattress and a quilt in the back. Constable Grant contacted the lieutenant on duty, Stanley Riley, who was the senior officer of the Navy base. He explained his situation and inquired about who the station wagon belonged to. He found that it belonged to a man named Derek Ernest Percy. He placed multiple calls for Percy over the loudspeaker, but there was no response. Eventually, they had to go searching for him. When they found him, they asked him, Where have you been today? Percy responded that he had gone to Phillip Island for a drive. Police took Percy in, although he was not under arrest. He led police to his car, which police noticed had a foul odour inside. Under Percy's driver's seat and in his glove box, three knives were found, including one that was stained with dried blood and looked exactly like the knife that Shane Spiller had described. Police pressed Derek Percy about the knife and the events that had taken place earlier that afternoon, and Percy responded, I am sorry, but I do things that I cannot remember afterwards. His locker was searched, and what police found was extremely disturbing. Percy had drawn sketches of naked children. Along with the sketches were notes that Percy had written about his sick fantasies. They said, Get two boys, aged 6 to 10, and two girls, aged 6 to 14, or a boy or three girls, and take them out to a place. When I get there, blindfold them and strip them and have a good look and feel. Tie them to trees and ropes coming from behind under armpits around behind the neck and under other arm and around the tree. Nail a stick to the tree and tape their heads to it. At the end of these notes, Percy detailed how the children in his fantasy would cannibalise each other. Meanwhile, Derek Percy's Navy roommates were watching the news on TV. 
an identikit sketch of the suspect in Yvonne's abduction flashed onto the TV screen. One of Percy's bunkmates stated straight away, Fuck, that bloke's a dead ringer for Percy. Police pressed Derek Percy about his whereabouts that morning. Do you remember being on the beach at Warneet? Percy replied, No, I don't remember anything about Warneet. At approximately 8pm that night, Derek Percy was escorted by police to Frankston Police Station. At the same time, Percy's car was shown to Shane Spiller and he identified the car as the one he had seen at the beach in Warneet. The police forensic unit seized the car as well as the mattress, quilt and other items belonging to Percy. It was approximately 12.15am when police were finally ready to interview Derek Percy. Many of the police officers had to hold back the urge to lay a punch on Percy, who they were sure had abducted little Yvonne earlier that day. Percy continued to deny that he was in Warneet. After a while, police decided to leave Percy alone with his thoughts. They placed the sketches of nude children that they had found in his locker, as well as the knife found in his car on the table in front of him, and left the room. Finally, after some time, police returned to the room, and Percy admitted that he could remember being at the beach. He said he saw two kids, a boy and a girl, and he grabbed the girl. He said, I know she's dead. Police asked him, why do you say that? He said, I killed her. At 3am, Percy accompanied four police officers to a small suburb called Devon Meadows. He was cuffed in the back of the vehicle with Constable Bernie Delaney on one side and Detective Sergeant Dick Knight on the other. He directed the driver, Detective Senior Constable Alan Porter, to the end of a dirt road. That's the place. She's in there. It was pitch black outside. The headlights illuminated the fields ahead until they came across the small body of 12-year-old Yvonne Elizabeth Tui. Her body was mutilated and her hands were tied behind her back. Derek Percy barely flinched at the sight. His face betrayed no emotion. The crime scene was secured and the forensic team descended on the grim site. Derek Percy was a monster who experienced overwhelming impulses. He would watch children from his car and write disturbing stories about them participating in unspeakable acts. He would sketch them doing the most revolting things. Derek Percy had a fetish that revolved around urination and defecation. At 4am on the 21st of July 1969, police had to break the heartbreaking news to Nancy and Francis Tui that their youngest daughter Yvonne had been murdered. Reportedly, Nancy let out a primal sound and Francis clenched his fists. This news would change their life and their family unit forever. In their grief, Francis and Nancy isolated themselves from the community they had once been involved in. Yvonne's sister became scared to mention her name in case it upset their parents. Life would never be the same. At 5.40am... Derek Percy continued his interview after scoffing down two hamburgers. He detailed how hard Yvonne had fought for her life. She had kicked, wailed and screamed as loud as she could. He stated that he knew it had been wrong to kill her, but that he had to so that she wouldn't identify him to police. He stated that when the Payton family had seen him sitting unusually high up in his car, 
he had been sitting on Yvonne so that nobody could see her. At 10 a.m. on the 21st of July, 1969, Derek Ernest Percy was charged with the murder of Yvonne Elizabeth Tui. Police were sure that Percy had committed other crimes. He was too twisted not to have. While Percy was in the assessment prison, he was visited by one of his former friends from high school, who was now a police officer. Ron Anderson remembered Percy as a quiet and likeable character. After greeting each other briefly, Percy said to Ron Anderson, Hello Ron, it looks like I've fucked up this time. That sentence struck Ron. What did Percy mean by this time? Ron pressed, Were there others, mate? Percy replied, I cannot remember. Ron Anderson decided to bring up some well-known cases to see how Percy would respond. What about Linda Stilwell? She went missing in St Kilda. Percy responded, Yes, I drove through St Kilda that day. I have been at Cerberus in the afternoon and was driving along the Esplanade on the way to the White Ensign Club for some drinks. Ron pressed harder. Did you kill Linda Stilwell? Percy replied, Possibly, but I don't remember a thing about it. For those that don't know, Linda Stilwell was a seven-year-old little girl that went missing from the St Kilda foreshore on the 10th of August 1969. Linda had been playing with her older sister and brother when the older two decided they wanted to go home. Linda was not keen on that idea and wanted to stay and play. Eventually, the two older kids got home and were sent back out to get Linda but they couldn't find her. Linda's mother became very, very concerned and called the police. Witnesses in the area stated that they had seen Linda accompanied by a dark-haired, very slim, gaunt-looking young man. Derek Percy matched the description and had been off duty at the time of Linda's disappearance. There were also sightings of a car in the area that matched the description of Derek Percy's car. Amongst the many leads called in for Linda's case, there was one tip from a sailor, a sailor at Cerberus that suggested police look into Percy. At the time, there wasn't enough to charge him on, but many people believed that he was the likely suspect. Ron Anderson then asked Percy about another well-known child murder case. What about Simon Brook in Sydney? Immediately, Derek Percy appeared familiar with that case. He said... I was driving my brother Lachlan to work that day. We turned off the railway cutting where he was found. I came back that day. Ron was shocked by what Percy was saying. So you drove past the same spot in Sydney on the day that Simon Brooke was killed? Yes, replied Percy. Do you remember if you killed him? I wish I could. I might have. I don't remember. Simon Brooke was three years old on the 19th of May, 1969. He was playing in the front yard of his home as his parents entertained friends inside. Simon came from a close-knit family. His father, Donald Brooke, was a 41-year-old fine arts lecturer. His mother was Phyllis. They lived in Glebe, which was a nice area in Sydney at the time. But nearby was Jubilee Park, which didn't have such a great name and was reportedly frequented by pedophiles. When the Brooks' friends left, they went out and looked for Simon, but they couldn't find him. They began to panic immediately and called the Glebe police to report his disappearance. 
Sadly, the next morning, Simon was found on a vacant block of land by a construction worker. He had been brutally murdered and mutilated and was naked from the waist down. Where he lay was only 400 metres from his home. Simon had been seen holding hands with a young man walking through Jubilee Park on the day he went missing at approximately 12.35pm. The man seen with Simon was described as 5'7 to 5'8 inches tall, with deep-set eyes, brown hair, a straight, long nose and an angular face. He looked like he was in his 20s, approximately 20 to 24 years of age. This was definitely a match for Derek Percy. Police profiled Simon's killer as a sexual psychopath, and they thought that they were definitely looking for someone who would strike again. Ron Anderson also asked Derek Percy about the Beaumont children. We're going to assume that most of our listeners know who the Beaumont children are, but if you don't, we have done an episode on it, so you can just check that out if you were interested. Percy told Ron that he had been in Adelaide at the time. Ron said, you were what? You remember being in Adelaide when they went missing? To which Percy replied, yes. Whereabouts were you when they disappeared? Near the beach, but nothing more. At this stage, a prison guard asked Ron Anderson to leave Percy's cell. Before he left, Ron asked, you admit that you remember being at three separate locations at the times and days that children were killed. Percy replied, yes, but I cannot remember what happened. Soon after, Derek Percy was charged with Yvonne's murder. Shane Spiller was brought in to participate in a police lineup. In those days, there were no barrier between the perpetrator of the crime and the victim or witnesses who were identifying them. Shane was required to walk right up to the man who had abducted his friend in front of him and to point him out. This would haunt Shane well into his adulthood. He remained scared that one day Derek Percy was going to get out of prison and come after him to finish him off, or even get a contract out on his life from prison. He never had peace. He slept with a cricket bat right next to his bed and even carved a DIY escape hatch into the floor of his living room. So who was Derek Percy? While we will never know why he became one of the most prolific child predators in Australia, we do know some things about his upbringing. Derek Percy was born in September 1948 at Strathfield in Sydney to parents Ernest and Elaine Percy. The family moved around a lot in Derek's early years before settling in the rural town of Mount Beauty. Derek was a bit of a loner growing up and people often thought he was a bit strange, which was not helped by the family moving around so often. His parents were quite strict with him and wanted to know where he was outside of school hours. This was quite a different experience to his brother Lachlan, who was allowed more freedom than Derek. It has been suggested that this may have been because Derek Percy's parents were concerned about what he might be getting up to without parental supervision. Derek was always obsessively neat and clean looking, and it was thought that his mother probably had a tight hold on her son. In the Percy's neighbourhood, women's underwear would often go missing from clotheslines, and the rumours swelled that it was the Percy's oldest son, Derek, who was the culprit. Derek was involved in a number of disturbing incidents as he grew up. 
At one stage, one of his friends, Ken, needed to have the sole of his shoe cut off because it had come loose. Derek was quick to offer his assistance to cut it off using his pocket knife. Instead of doing as he had offered, Derek plunged his knife into his friend's thigh, either on purpose or by accident. Either way, instead of quickly pulling the knife out, Derek Percy seemed mesmerised and just stared at the knife in his friend's thigh. Another time, a couple of boys from Derek's high school were walking through the bush when they spotted someone through a clearing on the bank of the river. The man was wearing a see-through pink negligee. They were shocked and disturbed when they realised it was their schoolmate, Derek Percy. They watched him dancing on the bank of the river and slashing a pair of women's knickers with a knife. Percy then stripped off the negligee, squatted down and defecated before wiping himself with the slashed up knickers. The boys were so scared they had the feeling Percy was the type of bloke who could kill someone. In another incident, a group of boys sent a young girl behind the school bike shed where Percy was waiting for her. He grabbed her and held her tight up against him. You can only imagine how scared the poor girl would have been. He wouldn't let her go and held her up against his aroused body while she struggled and screamed in fear. Disturbingly, the group of boys just looked on and laughed. Another time, Derek Percy invited two little girls to come into his family's caravan and instructed them to pull their pants down. Luckily, the girl's father found them before anything more could happen. He confronted Derek's father. Your son is sick. Get him to a doctor or I'll deal with him myself. While Elaine did organise for Derek to see a GP, the incident was brushed off as normal sexual exploration and nothing was done. In 1965, the Percy family moved away from the Mount Beauty area. Derek needed to complete his exams, so he stayed behind with a friend's family to do that. The family he was staying with had neighbours with young daughters, the mother of the girls had a really bad feeling about Derek Percy and when one of her daughter's dresses went missing from the house, she immediately thought of him. When he moved after his exams, the mum found her daughter's dress along with a mutilated doll, razor blades and newspaper clippings of mutilated women and children hidden behind a rock. She was sure it was Derek who had put them there. Derek ended up failing his exams and dropped out of high school to join the Navy. After Derek Percy was arrested and charged with the murder of Yvonne Tui, his mother and father were very distressed. His brother Lachlan didn't want to know about it. Derek was remanded at Coburg's Pentridge Prison while he awaited his murder trial. He was seen and assessed by Pentridge's psychiatric superintendent, Dr Alan Bartholomew. Bartholomew considered Percy to be of high intelligence, especially for a man not even 21 years of age. He did not come across as a madman, nor was he openly violent or rebellious. When Bartholomew asked Percy why he did what he did, Percy replied that it was a compulsion he had been experiencing for years. He had dreamed of sexually molesting, torturing and killing children. Bartholomew concluded that at the time of Yvonne's murder, Percy was in a psychotic state and should be considered not guilty by reason of insanity. He believed that at the time of the crime, Percy was incapable of determining right from wrong. On the 2nd of April 1970, Derek Percy's murder trial began and as expected, he pled not guilty by reason of insanity.
He didn't take the stand during his trial. Jurors choked back tears and one even fainted during the presentation of evidence against Percy in the murder of the little girl. Three different psychiatrists took the stand during the trial to declare that they believed Derek Percy suffered from a psychosexual disorder that caused great mental disturbance at the time of the murder. Derek Percy was described as a coprophiliac, which is a person who is, a, who is sexually aroused and obsessed with excrement. The trial lasted for six days, and two hours after the jury left to deliberate, they found Derek Percy not guilty by reason of insanity. Percy didn't flinch as the verdict was read out, and he was immediately taken back to Pentridge. Derek was sentenced to be held at the governor's pleasure, meaning that there was no minimum term on the amount of time he would be kept out of society. Percy was extremely unpopular in prison. He was known as a rock spider, which is slang for a pedophile. Rock spiders are the lowest of the low in prison, and Percy had to be housed separately from the other inmates so that he wouldn't be attacked and killed. He showed no interest in having his sexual issues addressed and treated and was reluctant to participate in any therapy. He remained a severe risk to the youth in the community and despite being a model prisoner, he would be caught multiple times writing disturbing stories and drawing disturbing pictures of children. This included people he had known in his real life before he was arrested and charged. There was no doubt in the minds of the officials that if he were released, he would immediately become a danger to the children of Melbourne. Bartholomew released a report in the 1980s that stated about Percy, he is not certifiable and neither is he psychiatrically treatable and he is totally unsuited to a, a mental institution. Should Percy ever be transferred, he will in all probability earn some degree of freedom as a result of reasonable and conforming behaviour. The consequences of such freedom could well prove tragic. Between 1970 and 1990, 17 different psychiatrists interviewed Derek Percy and all of them came to the same conclusion. In April 2005, there was a breakthrough in the case of Derek Percy. The original police file of Percy contained a number of shell touring maps which had been marked with a pink texture. It was noted that the routes near where both Simon Brooke and Linda Stilwell were last seen alive were highlighted. This added suspicion that Derek Percy had something to do with the disappearance and murder of these two children. Luckily for the children of Australia, Derek Percy was never released from confinement. He was detained until he died of lung cancer on the 23rd of July 2013. In October 2014, a coroner's court found that in all probability, little Linda Stilwell was abducted and killed by Derek Ernest Percy, bringing some small closure to the case that haunted her family for 46 years. It was stated by Victorian Deputy State Coroner Ian West, it is highly unlikely that another child molester was in the vicinity when Linda disappeared. I am satisfied that it is more probable that Derek Percy would have taken advantage of an opportunity presenting itself than anyone in the vicinity not so affected by a rare and dangerous condition. Hopefully one day Simon Brooks' family and the families of the other children that Percy is suspected of abducting get some form of closure too. 
Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. Our thoughts go out to the families of Yvonne Tui, Linda Stilwell, Simon Brook, the Beaumont children, and all other children that Percy had been suspected of hurting. Please join us again next week for another episode of the True Crime Sisters. And until then, please stay safe.